cool, cool. Uh, yeah, so we do stream it through to Facebook, by the way. So if you ever do have the cold and flu-like symptoms thing, or just you're in bed and you cannot not bed, um, <laughs> then, you, <laughs> then you can Facebook Live on, uh, on Cyberspace instead of Meet Space. <laughs> uh, Isaiah is a history book. It took place at a particular time, written by a particular person. Chapter 1, verse 1, it's the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah the kings of Judah, a historical book by a historical man, spanning from around 740 BC to the 600s, spanning around 40 years. Um, sorry, to the, the, the 700s. Um, uh, uh, it's a life work. It's the life work of Isaiah. It spans the reign, as we see here, of four kings of Israel. Also spans the, the reign of four emperors of Assyria who we'll get to know in the coming weeks with some fabulous names. Um, uh, Isaiah, you could say, those of you who are familiar with the Bible, is like the Romans of the Old Testament. It has that degree of significance and importance in the way we then read and understand the Scriptures as a whole. It's like the Romans of the Old Testament. It's a great mountain of a book. Uh, it, it's the most quoted of the prophets uh, of the Old Testament by New Testament writers. It's an enormous book with beautiful poetry. We saw some of it this morning. Prophecies that come to be fulfilled in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection and ministry. It gives us this vision of God again and again, the great Holy One of Israel. And all sorts of really awesome, again, as we saw this morning, themes of the Christian gospel. It preaches the gospel at us in advance as it speaks so directly about sin Judgment, atonement, universal salvation, a new creation to come, and a final judgment. As you grasp Isaiah, it unlocks the Old Testament for you, and as a result, then unlocks the New Testament for you in a deeper way. It deepens the New Testament. Yeah? And as you then grasp that, you then come back to Isaiah and see still more in it. It's this really happy, uh, what they call a hermeneutical spiral, or an understanding spiral. As you read it, it helps you understand the New Testament, throws you back to the Old Testament, and you get this deepening and deepening of the truths of God. It's fantastic. Mm. And this morning we look at this kind of, uh, sort of the opening chapter, a bit of a prologue thing. A bit later on in, in, in the coming weeks, we'll look at Isaiah 6, which kind of is like the beginning beginning, <laughs> where you get the call of Isaiah. But this is like the prologue. This is before the credits. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and, and Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 are kind of like this prologue. And in some ways, chapter 1 uh, summarises all of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And in some ways, all of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 66. It captures up the big themes of what we're going to see. It's like an overture or something that introduces us to the main themes. As God summons his people to trial, in fact, summons the nations of the world to trial, ultimately... God who rules the world calls the nation of Israel to account. 1 verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. It's this cosmic thing. For the Lord has spoken. I've reared children, brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. Or 1 verse 18, that same kind of trial language. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He's summoning the nation for a very serious... Uh, a, a courtroom with all of heaven and earth in attendance. 
And he speaks of the outrageous nature of the sin of this chosen people Israel, that God has particularly given his words, his ways, his will. There's a dishonourable rebellion, as it's described there in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. So hear, O heaven, listen, O earth, the Lord has spoken. I reared children, I brought them up. It's kind of like describing the Exodus. I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Ah, my sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of vipers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs on him. It's outrageous. And it's just dumb as well. That's kind of the, 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 the ironic flow of chapters 4 to 9. I don't know, are there any Monty Python fans here? It's pretty old school. There's one. Yeah, a few. Don't be ashamed. It's all right. You're in, you're in good company. Have you, you know the one about the Black Knight, the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where he insists no one can get past me? You know, and then King Arthur just cuts off his arm. And he goes, come on, your arm's off. It's just a flesh wound. Come on, come on. Eventually he loses his other arm and both legs and still says, get back here. What are you going to do, bleed on me? Um, <laughs> uh, that's the kind of comically ridiculous description here where it's like, your arm's off, your leg's off. What are you doing? You're covered in wounds and welts. Why are you carrying on rejecting God? It's getting you nowhere. It's but a scratch. <laughs> Um, it's foolish, in other words. It's absurd. And your religion, as a result, is meaningless. Oh, well, actually, more than meaningless. It's disgusting. It's a really amazing theme in this book of Isaiah, a religious book, a holy book, a spiritual book. At several times, right across it, right to the very end of it, this theme will come back of saying, religion performed with hypocrisy and corruption is actually worse than no religion. Don't be fooled by the kind of civil religion, um, uh, kind of performative religion that says as long as you go through the motions, you're good or holy or God likes that kind of thing. Did you notice that, that way that God... So I tried to bring it out as I read, the, the degree of a scorn that comes through it. But from verses 10 to 17, God says to these people, your sacrifices, all these religious sacrifices that the Old Testament had talked about back in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but these sacrifices... What are they to me? What, what are you doing? You know, it's like the cat comes in and brings you a mouse. Ta-da! Dead mouse. <laughs> what do you want me to do with this? You're meaning that I've had enough, God says. I've had enough of all this stuff. I don't get any pleasure in it. In fact, when you come in and go through these religious motions, you're trampling my courts. It's, it's really, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? Don't ask this guy back to the conference to preach. It, it, it's, it's, you know... The multitude of your sacrifices, your praise with hands held high, your sacrificial missionary activities or Bible teaching activities, your going through the liturgy and reciting of the peace be with yous and also with yous. Um, stop bringing meaningless offerings, verse 13. It's detestable to me. I can't bear it. My soul hates it, verse 14. They've become a burden to me, verse 14. I'm weary. It's, it's shocking, isn't it? Your religion, because of your lifestyle, because of your political behaviour, your economic behaviour, your secret sins that you're indulging in with no desire to wrestle or battle or, or repent of them, it makes your religion disgusting to God. 
detestable. It's just amazing, isn't it? Better no religion. In some ways, that's one of the responsibilities of youth ministry and university ministry is helping the kids who went through Christian schools and grew up in church realise they're not Christians at all and actually say, you know what, it would be better for your soul if you owned it and came out as not really a Christian at all because then we can do some good soul work with you and talk about sin and repentance and actual salvation. But as long as you keep playing the game, get entertained by Christian music and Christian camps and, and enjoy the Christian social life but are not real with God, you're in really serious danger. You're trampling God's courts. You're going through emotions that are wearisome to God. It's a really serious thing. Really seriously, spiritually dangerous thing to be religious but not repentant. Yeah? And he speaks about the social injustices that are tolerated amongst his people, verse 21 to 24, of, uh, of murder, of bribes and chasing after gifts. No, not just explicit bribes, but the favours. Favors to favor. I remember once actually visiting a, a church movement in um, in the United States, and uh, though all of those I went with, we were given a gift, a really valuable gift of extremely expensive Bible software, just given. And this older minister that I was with didn't receive it. He explicitly said, "Oh no, thank you. That's so generous of you, but no, thank you." And he said, "Because I don't want to be bought." And they may not be intending to do that, but I want to be above board in that area. I don't want to be accepting favors that make me. Obligated? Yeah. Do you see the, the, the risk there? It's not always black and white, but, but gifts can have their place too. But it's more seriously still, they don't defend the case of the fatherless. The widow's case doesn't come before them. We run a system that privileges and protects those uh, who are visible and powerful and normal. But when those who are on the outside, when the refugee or the single mother or the gay or the trans person... Yeah, when the poor, when the woman who's the victim of assault gets ignored or managed, not believed and treated seriously. He's challenging these people who are running a system that suits them and tramples on those who are weak rather than seeks to love and care and, and Dishonourable, foolish, meaningless religion, injustice. And, and this whole, the tragedy of this all is it should be different. It should be different. These are, 1 verse 2, God's children that he brought up. Or verse 4, they are God's people, his children. Verse 8, they are the daughter of Zion. Zion is like that spiritual visionary way of describing Jerusalem, God's people. They are the daughter of Zion. Or verse 21. They were the faithful city where justice used to dwell, where righteousness used to dwell. Should be different. And so as we read through this chapter, and as we'll see the whole book, we almost get in the one city, you could like kind of flick some lenses on and off perhaps. And with one set of lenses, you see this city as, it's called in verse 10, Sodom, Gomorrah, a harlot, verse 21, a city of murderers. But then you flip another lens on and you see it could have been the daughter of Zion. It could have been the faithful city. It could have been verse 26 and will be one day, God promises, the city of righteousness, the faithful city. 
We see Zion and Sodom. We see the city of God and the city of humanity. We see God's chosen faithful people, God's faithless, rebellious, wicked people. In the one city. And so God promises justice will come from God upon this rebellious, faithless city. Verse 20, if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse 28, rebels and sinners will both be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. You'll be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you've delighted. You'll be disgraced because of the gardens that you've chosen. You'll be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water, like a mighty man will become tinder and work a spark. Both will burn together and no one will quench the fire. Zion or Sodom and Gomorrah, the faithful city or the harlot. Two lives, two realities, the people of God, the people of this world, the city of God, the city of humanity, a community of obedience, a community of rebellion, a civilization, a society shaped by the gospel of God or by false gods. Right in this room, right in our city, there's the same thing. You could flick the lenses up to see two things going on, even right here. Where do you dwell? Where are you a citizen? Where are you working? What's, where's your allegiance, your hope, your security, your identity? Is it with the world, with its pride, its false gods, its corruptions? Or is it with God and his promises, his mercy, his ways? When we come back to looking at these chapters, we'll look at chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, and chapter 4, the teeny tiny chapter 4, um, to see that the promise of what Zion could be and God says one day will be. We'll look at the hope for the city of God. But today we're going to look at more at the despair for the city of humanity. As the famous book, The City of God by Augustine put it, The City of Man. Let's see what Zion now is. Let's see Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the harlot city. Chapter 2, from verse 6. Instead of glory raised up with wisdom and the law of the Lord and the nation streaming to them, instead we see, 2 verse 6, You've abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines with, and clasp hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to the treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind will be humbled. Do not forgive them. The people will flee the judgment of God, verse 10 says. Go hide into the rocks from the dread of the Lord and the splendour of his majesty. We see it again in verse 19. People will be humbled and ashamed of the false gods they've devoted themselves to. Verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled, the pride of men brought low, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Or verse 20, in that day men will throw away to the rodents and the bats their idols of silver and of gold that they made to worship. And on that day, throughout this chapter, we get told, in the end, God alone will be exalted. That's the happily ever after. God will be glorified in the end. Verse 11 at the very end, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 17, we get the refrain come up again. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, again, um, men will flee from the holes in the ground for the dread of the Lord, for the splendour of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And then verse 21 the splendour of majesty when he rises to shake the earth. 
God's saying to this people, and, and, and he's saying to us today as well, can you see the silliness of, of false gods that we make up for ourselves to suit ourselves? That revealing statement, oh, the God I like to believe in is, that's not like the God I like. It's, it's a, it can be a revealing statement, as if God is something that can just be fashioned to, you know, to spec, a bespoke God, a kind of a custom God. Just go to the website and click on the things you want, and there you go. 3D printed. The idols, literally in the Hebrew language, are no-gods. You're worshipping these no-gods. You see, mere philosophy, mere spiritual disciplines, theories, exercises, meditations, they're frail, they're faulty, they're just stuff we make up to do that can be soothing and meaningful in some existential way, but they're not ultimate truth. Magic, art, self-actualization in the end come to nothing. Ultimate. All human strength and human riches and wealth and bank accounts and career paths and CVs and, and these other things we rest in and boast in are so insecure, they're so frail. And in chapter 3, he speaks about the, the decay of sinful Jerusalem. Pitiful, desperate picture of a society in collapse. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, describes uh, a loss of all supply and a loss of all leadership. There's something kind of wretched about a society that no longer has strong, uh, capable leaders of integrity anymore. It, it's, it's a... It's a sad business, verse 4. I'll make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other. Verse 6, a man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, hey, you have a cloak, you be our leader. <laughs> Take charge of this heap of ruins. <laughs> it's because of their pride and their rebellious ways, verse 8. Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling. Their words and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They look on the faces, testify against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. They've brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it'll be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They'll be paid back for what their hands have done. The Lord will rise up to bring judgment, as verses 13 to 15 say, because of their pride, verse 16. The Lord says, here it's zeroing in on the women of Zion, they're haughty. Walking with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping with their mincing steps, with ornaments jingling with their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps, scalps bald. Disgrace and judgment and shame will come. Women here are singled out as an example, not the only one. It's not as if it's all because of the women and their mincing steps. That's the issue. They're singled out as an example, I think partly because the city is referred to in feminine terms throughout this. The city is the righteous city or the harlot. It's uh, the daughter of Zion and so forth. So it's, it's picked up as an example that evokes that, that imagery that's already being used. And it's used as an example particularly of a degree of pride and, uh, and a wealthy sort of vain pride. Here's um, Derek Kidner in his commentary, his little commentary on Isaiah. Um, uh, he says, there are 21 items of finery listed here. So you see that they're like, say, in verse um, uh, 
the the bangles verse 18 the headbands the crescent necklaces the earrings the bracelets the veils the headdresses the ankles the chains the sashes the perfume bottles the char it's it's listing on and on and on to paint a he says there are 21 items of finery made a little kingdom of their own enough to occupy the whole mind and utterly vulnerable the terrible transformation scene has often been enacted Verse 24, instead of fragrance, there'll be stench. Instead of sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. The terrible transformation scene has often been enacted in history. And the fate of the individuals becomes symbolic of that of the mother city itself. An image used both of Babylon and Jerusalem. Although these particular trivialities may seem remote, all generations and both sexes have their own all generations of both sexes have their own solemn absurdities, which can be all-absorbing. That's good, isn't it? All generations and both sexes have their own solemn absurdities. The men gathered around the ute. The geeks around the overclocked PC. <laughs> Whatever it is that obsesses us. In this context, the Star Trekkie is getting all the, all the episodes and the theories there, but it just right. In the context of these chapters, they present us with one more aspect of earthly glory. It's emptiness, which must be put to shame before the glory of God. Here it portrays a particular kind of feminine, feminine obsession with looks and baubles and dressing and beauty and so on. But it's empty. It's a solemn absurdity. It comes to nothing. You pick your own thing there. What are your solemn absurdities? The 21 lists of things that just fill your world, fill your head. You just dwell about it round in circles and circles and circles. Pride and self-indulgence and injustice eats away at this people, eats their community, their society alive, leads to decay and disgrace. Pride and self-indulgence brings upon itself the judgment of God. An application from this section, um, a good summary application, is 2 verse 22. 2 verse 22. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Sorry, what reference was that? Chapter 2 verse 22. Music to a preacher's ears. Sorry, what reference is that? That's good, isn't it? Listening and thinking and checking. Don't put your confidence in human beings. They're fragile, they're corrupt, they're fallible, sinful human beings. We're at our worst when we put blind trust and spiritual confidence in other human beings. I mean, it's crazy, the things that get said in love songs, isn't it? I will love you forever and give you all things, my life, myself, my everything, because I love you. <laughs> just a human being. I mean, love is great. Romance is wonderful. But it's just love. It's just romance. And that guy, that girl, they're just a human like you. Don't give your whole heart, your whole self to another frail, sinful person. That's not actually good for a long-term love life either. It's not a health, healthy path for a relationship. You're not seeing each other. I mean, it's, it's awesome the way the other person gets transfigured into a god or goddess in the, in the sweep of romance. They're just so perfect. Everything they do. And then they burped, but it was such a cute burp, you know. <laughs> and everything about them is just so lovely. Um, 
But in a way, you're not seeing them in that moment, really, are you? You're not seeing them in their flaws and in their vulnerabilities and their failures. and their... You're not really seeing another person. And it's foolish if you put all your trust into romance or into a leader, spiritual leader. We know the horrible disappointments and abuses that take place when people invest too much trust and confidence in a priest, in a bishop, in a guru, in a religious leader, political leader, an artist, a lecturer, a mentor, who just seems so sophisticated and so knowledgeable and so able to make you powerful and set you off on a meteor trajectory in your chosen career, a movement, a council, or yourself. Even trusting yourself, you should learn a distrust for yourself. Trust in the Lord. Our only true hope and secure rock is him and him alone. This section finishes with the Song of the Vineyard in chapter 5. Recaps the themes we've covered today. Israel here, instead of a daughter or child, is a vine. I'll sing for the one I love, chapter 5, verse 1, a song about a vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared the stones and we get the whole agricultural business set up description going through the next few verses here. Setting up this vineyard, preparing it to be fruitful. God loved it. God invested in it. God set it up to be glorious and to bring forth more joy and, and delight and glory for the world. But it was a total failure, verse 3. You dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Oh, sorry, the end of verse 2 says it yielded only bad fruit. Judge between me and my vineyard. What could have been done in my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? And so God resolves to tear down the vineyard, verses 5 to 7. Let it go. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty, verse 7, is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice and saw bloodshed, looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah unleashes six woes at the end of chapter 5. And, oh my goodness, they could describe our world today. It's amazing. Um, the same things, the same boring, horrible human wickedness. Verse 8, here's the housing crisis. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left in it and you live alone in the land. <laughs> I don't know what you've been told by your parents or by your church about the role of property ownership in terms of building your blessed wealth to be a blessing to others. But one of the responsibilities of property ownership, if it's not your property, is to provide accommodation for your fellow human beings. It's not just there to generate wealth for yourself. And so there's an ethical responsibility for Christians owning property, especially investment property, to think about how to be responsible stewards of this property, which is there to provide accommodation to other human beings. Yeah? And I've heard some really depressing stories of Christian property owners who really do manage it cynically and tight-fistedly to maximise their property portfolio. But I've also heard some incredible stories of Christian property owners who go, you know what, I don't need to increase the rent. I want to be flexible and considerate and patient with my tenants. If God ever blesses you, <laughs> some of you may become people with that privilege or inherit it from your parents, be, be warned about the way you manage your property. 
Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after drinks and stay up late at night, getting inflamed with wine. Drink use, drug use. That could be written today, couldn't it? Verse 18, woe to those who draw sin along with the cords of deceit, hiding it up, covering it up, pushing it under, managing your sin and your reputation. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? There's very sophisticated arguments that flip around what God says is wrong and turn it into a right, a human right, a good thing, rather than something against God's will. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. And so again, the end of this chapter comes with more judgment. He lifts a banner to the distant nations, verse 26, whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp or their bows are strung. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, he'll see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. And that's the end of the prologue. No hope at the end, is there? Just darkness and dread. When will God say enough? When will God say enough is enough? Too much is too much. When will God's mercy be exhausted entirely? How can we be sure there is any hope left? Can Zion be established or is it doomed? You see how, how this kind of grim stuff prepares the way for the Christian gospel so incredibly. See how it makes you just, if you're a Christian here, if you know the end of the story, you just want to shout out and go, but Jesus saves, he forgives, he rescues, he can... He can soften the hardest heart. He can shower mercy upon the most guilty sinner. He can restore what is broken in his life. His return will bring a new creation. You, you want to shout out the screen <laughs> as, as, as Isaiah is unfolding across the television screen and go, but Jesus! The preaching of the sin of humanity and the judgment of God opens up this space that cries out to be filled by the gospel of Jesus. Sort of wonderful thing, not just as a, an added extra, not just as the perks of being in Christian community, which are many, not just the, the clarity of knowing how to live well, which is clear indeed, um, not just a sense of significance and purpose, but reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sin, atonement for the judgment of God, transformation for the whole universe. And that's the stuff we're going to be certain all through Isaiah. And it's massive and it's overwhelming, but it's glorious. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Almighty, forgive us for our pride, folly, selfishness, sinfulness, hypocrisy. Forgive us for our tiresome, insincere religion. 
Forgive us because Jesus is the saviour who died for our sins and rose to new life, who washes us clean. And we pray that you help us worship you and trust in you and speak for you and live for you. By your power, help us do these things in thankful response and humble obedience to you, our Father, our Saviour, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Feel free to hang around as long as you like or head off if that's what you've got to do.